Good morning to you all. If you would turn to the book of Ephesians, chapter 1, where today, Lord willing, we will finish the chapter. As once again, the Lord has blessed me and allowed me to do more than one verse on a Sunday. We'll be in verse 19 through 23 this morning, talking about three specific things the Lord has given me this morning out of this text. And I'm going to list those ahead of time. They are three things about Jesus and how he's better than other things. If you're interested in that topic, you might enjoy this message. Number one, he is above all rule and authority. Number two, he is above every other name. And three, he is above even the church. Let us pray. Dear Lord Jesus, help us to glorify you today. You, Lord, are above all. You, are the Christ, the anointed, the Messiah, the one crucified and risen again so that we could be saved. Lord, help me. I make it so often about myself. Help me make it about you. Lord, let me put you above everything. In your name we pray. Amen. In verse 19, we see the scripture says, And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power? toward us who believe according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead, seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things in the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Point number one, Jesus is above all rule and authority. Christ rules over all rulers, kingdoms, governments, powers, authorities, and influences. In fact, we Christians who claim to follow Christ should never be overly concerned about outside influence if, in fact, our devotion to Christ is as good as it could be. I would wager that we are often greatly concerned about outside influences is actually revealing that our devotion to him is lacking. We're so overly concerned about the government. We're so overly concerned about this material world. Frightfully afraid. I've even heard some Christians describe their fear of the next coming years and decades. And I'm not saying you don't have reason to be concerned. But you have a reason today that supersedes all concern, all earthly care, all earthly matters, Christ is above all these things. His immeasurable greatness. You won't measure how great Jesus is. As soon as you think you've gotten to the bottom of it, there's more. You and I are like kids in the surf on the beach, splashing in the two foot of water. If it's there that we decide, I know all of the ocean. We don't know any of it. We should never say that about Jesus. We should never say, Lord, I've reached the end of your immeasurable love. I figured you out and there is no more for me to learn. The greatness of his power toward who? Where is all this greatness being directed, this power? It's toward us who believe. We who believe. We who claim To believe in something we can't see, we can't prove, I can't buy, I can't give you, I can only describe to you. We who believe 
this great power is coming. We who believe this power is working according to his great might. He worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. So this triune relationship between God the Father, the Son, and the Spirit is working to do what? Elevate our worship to God and off of ourselves. Everything in the Bible is leading up to this one single point. God be glorified. That's why the angels can roam the throne room singing three lyrics that they repeat, by the way. Holy, holy. Holy. Hebrews says without holiness, we won't even see God. That's why they roam the the throne singing holy. God is holy. God be glorified. This is the point of all. Not just our worship, but our salvation, our church attendance, everything that you and I are is leading up to this point. In glory, we will glorify God who deserves to get his glory. Far and above all rule and authority. Go to John chapter 18, please. Jesus has already been betrayed. He has been kissed on the cheek. His followers have fled. And he's now brought in verse 33 before Pilate. The Jews cannot execute Jesus on their own. To do so would be seen by the Roman authorities as the beginning of an insurrection. And so they have to appeal to an authority they neither like nor agree with, but they're going to use to kill the guy that they're not happy with. They bring Jesus before Pilate. So Pilate entered his headquarters again. You ever read scripture and just kind of read over things? I did that this week and I was like, Pilate has headquarters? Like a general, you know, like he's the captain of the enterprise or something? He's got a bridge? He enters this headquarter room called Jesus and said to him, are you king of the Jews? And there's another way to read this too. Pilate, who doesn't really care about Jewish infighting, all he cares about is getting the tax money back to the city of Rome. That's what he's there to do and keep insurrection from happening. So this is just another headache on his plate. And he goes, hey, Jesus, you, next up, are you king of the Jews? Because other people have said they were king of the Jews. They led rebellions. They got killed. So he goes, all right, you king of the Jews. And Jesus said, do you say this on your own accord or do others say it about me? Look what Pilate says in verse 35. Pilate answered, am I a Jew? This is so beneath me. I don't have time for this. Don't you understand I'm ruling the the Roman authority in this area in my headquarters and you're in here? Talking about king of the Jews, there's no king of the Jews anyway. And if there was, we would kill him. So Pilate scoffs, am I a Jew? You can almost hear the anti-Semitism dripping off that sentence a little bit, can't you? Am I one of you dirty people? Your own nation and chief priest have delivered you over to me. So nobody likes you. It's up to me now whether I'm going to have you killed or not. So what have you done? Plead your case. And now Pilate is used to people being accused and coming before him and falling on their knees and saying, please let me go. I didn't do it. It was the other guy. That's what Pilate's used to. What have you done? Verse 36, 
Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. Mm, just let that sit for a second. My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would be fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from this world. Jesus is not here, and he was not sent, and he has not been risen, so that you and I can have an earthly kingdom of this world. Even the implications of the new heaven and the new earth coming down in Revelation are not what's being discussed here. Because what the Jews want is Zionism, insurrection, kick out the Romans, give us back our country. We want to return to the glory days of David and Solomon. Jesus frustrates them because his kingdom is not of this world. And why is that so frustrating to the flesh? Because a kingdom of this world I can build, I can make happen, and men will glorify me. And how many men have tried that? What's the famous quote? It's, I don't think it's actually a primary source. It's later, as I understand it, but it's a pretty good quote. It's in history books now, so we can say it. Alexander looked at all the kingdoms he had conquered. And what did he do? Wept, for there were no more. Alexander probably never did that, but it's recorded. That's what we want. Think about Satan when he tempted Jesus. What did he offer him? The kingdoms of the world. But Jesus is not here to build an earthly kingdom. He is not here to build a dynasty. He is not here to spread the name of Jesus. He's here to spread the name of God. See what I mean by that? He's not here to make himself known. What did he, what did he say? I have come to make my father known. I have come to fulfill that old covenant. And now I bring you a new one. Jesus did not come to establish an earthly kingdom, but a heavenly one. We are not called to go out and fight in the name of Jesus to rule the earth. Not once. Think about the Crusades. And I love history. I love this historical time period. The church literally decided, hey, brown people we don't like have Jerusalem we should take that back from them. And it was a response to rising Islam aggression. There's a lot of convoluted politics there. But the point is, the church told soldiers, hey, go take the Holy Land, and anything you do while doing that, God will forgive you. So they murdered and pillaged and raped and destroyed all the way there in the name of an earthly kingdom. In fact, if you look throughout history, the pursuit of an earthly kingdom often, often, more often brings genocide than it does peace. In an attempt to establish an earthly kingdom, we end up fighting and killing more than if we'd simply ruled under whatever powers were already over us. We are not called to go out and fight in the name of Jesus for this world. We are called to advance the kingdom of God. That's why our weapons are not physical. They are not carnal. They are spiritual because we're not fighting physical battles. We're fighting spiritual ones against darkness, against sin, against evildoers. Our weapons 
If they are physical, we have already lost the war. Christian, you can't fight a culture war. You are already lost. You are a guerrilla anyway. They've won. They have it. They own it. What good is it to you to even get all the government to declare themselves a Christian theocracy? How will that advance God's kingdom? How will that help sinners convert? How will that advance the will of God for His church? We've had theocracies in the past. John Calvin had a theocracy. They still had to execute people. They still had issues and problems. The point I'm trying to get across to you is that when Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world, he means it. He's serious. And none of us should go, yeah, but Biden. Yeah, but Jesus Trump. My kingdom is not of this world. Do you like how I said both names as not to offend anybody? (laughs) Don't waste your time fighting a culture war that you can't win and you're not called to win nor equipped to win. Instead, fight the good fight. Fight the spiritual war. Fight with prayer and the gospel and love for your neighbor. Fight with the good news. Look at Acts. That's what they did. They didn't go establishing an earthly kingdom. Paul and Peter didn't get in there and sharpen swords. All right, we're going to take out the Romans now. We've been building us a little army underground. We call them churches, but they're really just guerrilla groups. We're about to take it all back. They don't do that. They never do that. They fought the spiritual war of good news, and so should we. Verse 37. Pilate said to him, so you are a king? And Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. This is the truth we fight for, that Jesus is the Christ, the anointed, the Savior, our Lord. Verse 38. Pilate asked him a question, rather revealing of Pilate's sophisticated and intelligent nature. Pilate said to him, what is truth? Look what the verse says. After he said this, he went back outside and told the Jews, I find no guilt in him. Pilate asked Jesus, what is truth? And then didn't wait for the answer. Because he already knew. Well, whatever you decide is truth, that's fine, king of the Jews. But I'm Pilate, and I'm established by Roman authority, so I'm good. That's my truth. That's my truth. Have you ever asked Jesus, Lord, what is true? And then sped off without waiting for the answer. In the silence, we actually have an answer revealed. Jesus standing there is presented as the embodiment of truth. That's why Pilate can't ask him anymore. He has to go and tell the Jews, I I can't find nothing wrong. In his commentary, Edward Bloom says, Pilate's question, what is truth, has echoed down through the centuries. How his question was intended is problematic. Was it a wistful desire to know what no one could tell him? Was it philosophical cynicism concerning the problem of estepanology? Was it indifference to anything so impractical as to abstract thought? 
It's a lot of fancy words for saying, like, what's it all mean? <laughs> or was it irritation at Jesus' answers? These are all possible interpretations, but the significant thing is this. He suddenly turned away from the one who Scripture declares in John 14, 6, is the truth. Without waiting for an answer, Pilate's declaration of Jesus' innocence is important. Just like Exodus 12, 5, he's going to die like the Passover lamb, innocent, unblemished, and perfect. A male in his prime. Verse 39, but you have a custom that I should release one man for you at Passover. So who do you want me to release to you? The king of the Jews? Do you want Jesus? This is the most important question that anyone can be asked. Do you want Jesus? Do you want Christ? And look what they answer. They cried out again, no, not this man, but Barabbas. Now, Barabbas was a robber. Does everyone's Bible say robber? Mostly, primarily? The Greek word here is a little bit tricky to translate, and it actually intends less of a thief in robbing and more of an insurrectionist. Now, he was a thief. He robbed. But his reasons for stealing were not hungry, poor, feeding the kids type stuff. Barabbas was stealing to undermine the Roman authority. Barabbas is an insurrectionist terrorist. And he's trying to bring down the Roman government in Judea. John MacArthur said this about it in a sermon I read on this verse. It may well be that the two thieves crucified on both sides of Jesus were Barabbas's henchmen. And he was intended to be in the middle cross. But here again, the Jews are forced to reveal their hypocrisy. They pretend to be concerned about Jesus because he's an insurrectionist, leading a rebellion against Rome. Not only is he not, but here is a man, Barabbas, who is an insurrectionist, who led a rebellion against Rome, killed people in the process, robbed in order to make himself wealthy, in order to fund his revolution, but they didn't want Barabbas to die. They want Jesus to die. Give us the revolutionary, the guilty, kill the innocent. John MacArthur's wise sermon words. The people wanted Barabbas because he was fighting for the kingdom of Jerusalem on earth. A kingdom they could take pride and glory in. A kingdom that they themselves could pat themselves on the back and say, look what we have done. Christians, when we get more concerned about our government than we do our God, it is almost like saying, give me Barabbas. I don't want Jesus. Are you saying we shouldn't be concerned about government? No. I am saying you should be more concerned with the kingdom of God. Let me say this definitively. Your government matters less than Jesus. That's my official position. Point number two. Oh, wait, no, I have a good line here. I don't want to go on yet. We're still in point number one. I even highlighted this one. I thought it was so good. Look, you read John MacArthur and you've got to write stuff. It's intimidating, all right? <laughs> they rejected the kingdom of God in favor for their own kingdom. They would have accepted the offer of Satan for the earthly kingdoms while Jesus fulfilled the will of God. Point number two. Go to Hebrews chapter one. 
Hebrews chapter 1. Point number two, in Ephesians, in verse 21, it says that he is above every name that is named. Now, we have a lot of song imagery here. There's a lot of great uh, only name, all in all, that name every above every other name kind of imagery. But in Hebrews chapter 1, the author is declaring from the get-go just excellence about Christ. Hebrews 1, starting in verse 1, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, the King James says various sundry, which I do like that translation, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. Christ and the headship we live under has been ordained by God the Father. He is the heir to the kingdom of God. In him we find our kinship, our relationship, our family, our salvation, and our joy. Verse 3, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature and that he upholds the universe by the word of his power. There's a word for you. (laughs) After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Don't you love how this is written sometimes? Just the image of Christ, perfect, risen, scarred. The Bible doesn't say his scars went away when he ascended to heaven and acts. But he's sitting down now at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For which to the angels did God ever say, you are my son? Today I have begotten you. And of course that word begotten doesn't mean physically create. It means to bestow honor upon. Or again, I will be to him a father and to me he shall be a son. God never once looks at the angels and said, hey, you're my child. You're my son. You're my daughter. No, he never does. In fact, they're messengers that he says, hey, Go hold a flaming sword to kill the one guy and go tell that young girl she's going to bear the Messiah child. (laughs) That's what God says to angels. And if they rebel, he locks them in chains of darkness. Different sermon, I'm sorry. (laughs) Different sermon. Which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son? So we, and you'll see if you read on in Hebrews, which if you never have, I encourage you, we'll see that even we are higher than the angels because we are on the same level as Christ after salvation. We are made children of God. Jesus is above all the world, the angels. There is no other name that we can claim which will justify us before the throne of God. You cannot claim any doctrine, any theology, any title, even Baptist, over the name Jesus Christ. When I was a young pastor, I was around a lot of older men who constantly were pulling me in different areas of theology. And as I grew, I learned some of them meant well, and some of them just wanted me to be like them. And I came to a realization in my late 20s. At that point, I was already a little educated, a little experienced. And I remember having a conversation with someone. And I said, you know, I have stubbornly decided to remain a Christian. I don't mean I was going to give up the faith. I mean that, well, we want you to be this thing, or we think you should follow this theological persuasion, or you should join with this denomination, or these people have it better. They're right, they're right, they're wrong. 
And as I read the scripture, I couldn't find anywhere to do that stuff. In fact, all I could find was the name above every other name, and that was the name that I should take on. That Christian, being a Christ follower, is the greatest title, the greatest doctrine, the greatest theology, the greatest name that I could ever bestow upon myself. So I love all the other theologies. I read a lot of them. I read a lot of heresy, too. Now, I don't recommend that for everybody. You have to be sharp if you're going to read heresy, because some of it is really, really sounds good. I've read Arius, and I'm like, this guy is kind of making a point. Ah, now close the book. <laughs> Never mind. <laughs> I read it just because of my academic background. It helps me understand where they go wrong. So I, I read a lot of it, but I, I do. Go to Acts chapter 11, verse 25. There's so much in the world that we could label ourselves with. So what should we? Well, the Bible already gives us a precedent and a rule for this in Acts 11, verse 25. The early church is in just full steam ahead. Verse 25, so Barnabas went to Tarshish to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Stanley Toussaint, in his commentary on Acts, says that Jesus' disciples were first called Christians at Antioch. The ending Christian, I-A-N, means belonging to the party of. Thus, Christians were those of Jesus' party. And I thought about, what's the best analogy I could come up with, right? Now, fellas, this is kind of for y'all in here, but ladies, it makes sense. Fellas, imagine you planned a great date night for your wife, right? And you get to the restaurant, it's packed, and they can't find your reservation. And you look over, and the missus is over there. She's looking so pretty. She's all dolled up, and you're starting to sweat. I called ahead. I planned. I made a reservation. You got to have it. And they're like, I'm sorry, we can't find it, Mr. Blank. I just, it's not here. When suddenly you hear a voice call out, hey, it's you. And you turn, and there's your best friends. And they got a table with two empty chairs. Come sit with us. And you say to the guy, we're with that party. Hey, dear, look what I planned. Your best friends are here. <laughs> I don't want to go in hoping my name's going to be on the list. I want to go in saying, I'm with Jesus' party. Wherever he's at, whatever table he's sitting at, that's the one I want to go to. Uh, I saw a thing on Facebook, and I, I do this too. I have fun, but it was a list of just great theological names, okay? We have time. I can have some fun with this. Yeah, we got plenty of time. It was like John Calvin and Martin Luther and like uh, Arius were at this table, you know, which he's a big heretic from back in the day. And then over at this table, James White and R.C. Sproul are talking about predestination. And at another table over here, oh, who was it? Uh, John MacArthur is talking to, uh, I think it was Andy Stanley, I think, and we're over there, and it's like, what table do I want to sit at? Because there's going to be fire over here by Martin Luther. They used to kill people back in the day. I want to hear what they're going to do. And it was a picture of all these tables, and all right, which one you pick in? Where are you sitting? And as I was looking at all the tables, I was going, oh, I'd sit over there. No, 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 I'd sit over there. And then I realized that Jesus wasn't on any of the tables. Now, I'm not criticizing the original author. It wasn't the intent of his, of his idea. But I realized, man, when I do this seriously, 
I really get off track. When I do this seriously, when I elevate other human beings to the same level of Christ in influence over me, doctrine, theology in my life, I have seriously cre created a big error. And possibly I'm leading my family or others into error. There's nothing wrong with reading any of those guys. Even some of the heretics I mentioned, you've got to read them. It's good to know because that heresy's coming back. It always is. But when Jesus, when he is number one, it's kind of like a wedding feast, which, interestingly, the kingdom of God is often described. I want to be at his table. When I'm at the door knocking, and they say, is your name on the list? And I'll say, well, my name can't be on the list, for then the list would be blemished. But I have an advocate. I have a brother. I have a friend. He put his name on there for me. And they look and they go, ah, we, yes, we see it. The anointed, come on in. There is no other name that we can claim besides the name Jesus. Mm, that's great. We Christians, we are Christians because we take the name of Jesus. We are of his party and therefore should follow his will. Third and final point, his name is above all the church. Go to Colossians chapter 2. Back in Ephesians, it says that in verse 22, he put all things under his feet and gave him its head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Colossians chapter 2. We're going to be in verse 8. The scripture declares... Paul is giving uh, good counsel to the church at Colossae. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. Now we have to separate two major things here. Paul did not say, see to it that no one takes you captive by their different understanding of the Bible than yours. See to it that no one takes you captive by how they worship differently than you're used to. Those are in-house discussions. Philosophy and empty deceit, that's the world. That's, that's everything but Christ according to human traditions. And this is the problem. When human tradition infiltrates the worship and we begin to guide our worship of God by human tradition, we begin to counsel people and make rules and laws and bylaws according to human tradition and not the scripture. What have we done? Created a pretty well-dressed, fancy social club. That's not church. Church is the bride of Christ. She looks and worships Christ. If someone believes differently than you do about the Bible, but they're a genuine believer who's repented and believed in Christ and they demonstrate spiritual fruit, they're not a heretic to be cast aside. You know what I found out many times? I had something wrong. And then I 
learned something else and sort of disagreed at first, but then after I read the scripture, I went, hey, I think they're right. I can't believe I was wrong. It's never happened before. (laughs) I don't expect it should happen again after this. What a singular moment in my life. Want to happen once and no other. (laughs) What is the philosophy and empty deceit they take you captive by? Somebody really nice and sweet. And somebody you love who goes, yeah, Jesus, I mean, that's fine for you. But for me, I'm going to do my own thing. And you can get as complicated as you want in philosophy. Trust me. (laughs) But the point I'm making here is that we are not talking about theological differences amongst other believers or even churches. We do often have a bad habit, us Christians, of getting it so narrowed down into our little sect that we are the only ones going to be in heaven and everyone else is going to be gone. It's like the old joke. Oh, we still have time. (laughs) There's a guy dies and he goes to heaven, and Peter's at the gates, which nowhere in the Bible does it say Peter's checking names at the gates, but that's typically how the jokes go. Peter's there, and this guy comes up, and he goes, hey, I'm a Southern Baptist, and I'm, I'm de- I died, and I'm, I'm here. And Peter goes, all right, let me check the name, Lamb's Book of Life. Yep, here you are. You repented and believed. Come on in. So they're walking through heaven, streets of gold. They're hanging out. Chick-fil-A's putting out chicken sandwiches. No wait. It's open on Sunday. <laughs> Can't wait to go to heaven. And they're walking along, and then all of a sudden, Peter, they go turn down a hallway, and there's a door, and it's the sign on the door says, please be quiet. And Peter goes, what, but, you know, don't, don't say anything. And the guy goes, who's in there? And the guy's thinking, like, is Paul in there praying? <laughs> and Peter goes, no, 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 that's the independent fundamentalist uh, Southern Baptist. They think they're the only ones here, so please don't say anything. <laughs> oh, I pick on them, I pick on them. That's okay, they're not watching our live stream. It's fine, it's fine. Hmm. <sighs> Being held captive by philosophy, being held captive by empty deceit according to human traditions, according to the elemental spirits of the world. Now we're talking about some real spiritual darkness that has shrouded the eyes of a lot of people. I would wager that even philosophy and empty deceit are less than elemental spirits of the world the spirits that we fight against in this world. That Paul is so clear about in Corinthians, we're destroying strongholds. We are battling against this ever-present darkness. It's real. And don't be fooled by thinking that it can't happen near you or to you. And finally, he ends in verse 10, into verse 9 here, into 10, and not according to Christ, according to Christ. And that should be the moniker of all that we do and all our conversations and everything. And that's what divides people, because everyone's about God. Yeah, I like God, yeah. Yeah, sure, I believe in God. Me and the big man, we talk. These weird Americana-isms we have about God in this country sometimes, right? The big man upstairs. How many floors is God on? Is he like the hundredth floor or the millionth? Where's God at? 
See, the idea is you can still work your way up to them. Just, just keep getting promoted and eventually you'll reach them. But this verse, this verse tells us that if it's not according to Christ, see that you are not taken captive by it. I have sometimes been taken captive by the most fascinating ideas. and wasted far too much off time when I should have been playing with the kids, reading about some interesting thing that turned out to be not really worth my time at all. See, it happens that way too. So many of us would stand here this morning and say, yep, I'm not taken captive by any elemental spirits, except football. That one's got its hooks pretty deep into me, except hunting, except movies, my video games. Yeah, I'm pretty taken captive. It's an easy test. How much time do you spend praying, reading your Bible, and enjoying Jesus, and how much time do you spend doing other things? If the numbers are lopsided, you might be taken captive. It's something to examine. I'm not saying it's true. I'm just saying be wary because it's easy for it to happen. Go on to verse 9. For in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. So Jesus is not just a pretty good guy. He's not just a great teacher and a great leader and an excellent orator. He's not just a good pastor. He is God. He has the whole fullness of deity. Don't be fooled by philosophy and tradition that seem to credit Christ, but under the surface it is simply a glory for humanity. The scripture declares Jesus over the world. Study so that you may know the difference between Christ and the elemental spirits of this world. Because they will not come to you dressed in the evil black clothing of the movie villain. They will come dressed in the very thing that you like and are interested in. Scripture declares Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. The very thing that you're into is how it will come. I heard a quote about the, the mafia a long time ago, back when they were really big in this country. It said that your, your, your murderers will not come in the middle of the night, dark and with black faces, you know, and hidden. They will come in the daylight as your friends, smiling, taking you to lunch. And that's how we humans do, isn't it? That's how Satan is. He's going to come the way you least expect. So don't be taken captive. But make sure your definition of being taken captive is based on Christ and not tradition. Verse 10, and you have been filled in him. That's a little part of the verse we often jump over, but look at verse 9. In him, the whole fullness of deity dwells, and you have been filled in him. Christ has taken everything that he has gotten from the Father down to the ones who the Father sent him to retrieve and while they were in the mire of sin, Jesus reached in without soiling himself and pulled us out. And he can only do it because he is fullness of deity. Because you and I were fullness of death. And you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule 
and authority. This is so important. So important because too many times I have made the mistake of giving my opinion and not God's word. Because in my opinion, could be right, could be wrong, is tainted by corrupted sin. So most likely it's not helping, but God's word being perfect, preserved, and from the Holy Spirit is doing what? It's guiding me to glorify God. It's demonstrating God to my heart, and it is leading me to worship only Him. Jesus is the head of the church because He has the fullness of deity. He is God. We don't just have a great man, a good teacher, a fantastic leader who is over and leading our church. We have God as the leader of this church. This is the joy of believers. The only one worthy to lead us is leading us to the kingdom of heaven and to glory. It is not traditional or orthodox. But this morning, if I had come down ill, I simply could have grabbed David Tyner, told him to open the book of Isaiah, and begin reading, and you would have had church the same, if not better, today. Could have grabbed Bill, told him to open the book of John, just start reading. You would have had church the same, if not better, than you are right now. Because he is the true head of this church. He and his word are the final authority, and he is above all. And that's how we got to lead. That's what I'm trying to commit myself to every morning. In fact, it goes back to a famous phrase from a famous book, WWJD. It's a little cliche, but I like it, because what would Jesus do? That question is answered in his word. Jesus would do the will of the Father. Jesus would glorify the Father. Jesus would save the lost. Go out and find the one and bring them back. That's what he would do. And that's what you and I should do. Let's pray so that God would begin to help us doing that today. Dear Lord Jesus, I thank you. I ask you to make your name above all others. Lord, help us not to be taken captive by this empty deceit. Help us to submit ourselves to the great leaders and teachers who demonstrate Lord, their fruit, that they serve you. And help us to love our brother, our sister, and our neighbor. Help us to go out and look for the one. Lord, all the while declaring that he, the Lord Jesus, is the name above every other name. That he is the fullness of deity. He is the Lord. He is the Messiah, the Christatus, the anointed one. He is Savior. And there is no other name under heaven by which I can be saved. Thank you, Lord.